0: The country does not equal to government agency only. The country should really represent the different stakeholders, and this will lead to a local governance structure. We call it country coordinating mechanism. And in this committee of mechanism, there are different constituencies representing government, academic, private sector. The bilateral and multilateral partners. And very important, there are another two constituencies. One is really the civil society, another is the people and community affected by the diseases. So this country coordinating mechanism, they will make decision where the money should be invested and how this will be invested. The Global Fund, we actually did not have any country offices.
1: Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I will be your host as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all backgrounds and affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Ki Tri. He is currently... The senior fund portfolio manager at the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, and focuses on managing a portfolio of infectious disease resilience and health system strengthening programs in the Philippines, Cambodia, and Thailand. He has over 18 years of experience as a senior professional in leading global health programs. She has especially worked to develop alliances with multi sectoral partners to catalyze investment in health for higher impact, and to identify and mitigate mission-critical risks. Previously, she served as program director at Marie Stop's International Organization in China, where her work focused on sexual and reproductive health and rights for adolescents and young people, as well as HIV-AIDS prevention, She initially studied English literature before pursuing two master's degrees in international journalism and international humanitarian action. Keith, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you, Safa. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Maybe we can begin by first speaking about your earlier interests in English literature and journalism and what were the reasons you were first interested in those topics and what happened that later you became more interested in pursuing a career
0: in humanitarian and development issues instead. Thank you, Safa. I would love to say there is a logical theme for my career and study path, but unfortunately, is not. So I'm a Chinese born, brought up, and educated in China, and I grew up in an average working-class community like most of Chinese families in the 1980s. It was also the time when China started its reform and open-up policy, which reshaped China almost in every aspect of the society ever since. It also led a fundamental departure from the traditional norms of group conformity. Individualism and the diversity, and such change actually has influenced my education or life or career choices profoundly. So the first choice happened in 1993 when I had to choose which university to go and which major to take. But instead of following up the expectation from my parents to pick up some topics practical and leading to a stable career like medicine, finance, or teaching, I decided to take something totally unknown, that is English, as I was curious to learn something very different from day-to-day life and expected English would be a key to open a door to a brave new world. So indeed, I took a good look at this new all the old world of Shakespeare and Hemingway in my university period. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. However, the literature world was kind of too calm for a 20-year-old young graduate to pursue the rest of the life as a career. I remember during that period, I came across a book written by a very famous, maybe one of the greatest journalists. Her name is Oriana uh, Lachi, and her coverage of war and revolution and her revealing and aggressive interviews were a great inspiration for me. So I thought I wanted to be like her. Then I decided to learn journalism and to become a reporter with the expectation to explore and present different news from different groups triggering more discussion, understanding, and changes. So after a few years of working as a press journalist, mostly focused on the hard news like political and economic topics, I started to question myself if any of my reports indeed improved the understanding between different groups, or if I was just repeating similar Analysis and critiques without any positive impacts on the people's life. After all, I spend most of my time as journalist thinking in different press conferences, gossiping with odd reporters, pressing the interviewees for some catchy responses and rushing to finish articles before deadline. And then I move on to the next topic which can catch the eyes. So I was in a period to really have the doubt if my job was real or really useful. So in 2002, I got an opportunity to work for an international NGO that is Maristow. I was immediately attracted by this idea as that job represents a complete package of new things the NGO at that time was a new concept for China. And the project is a combination of both public health and education. And the target group were actually adolescents, and young people, whom I felt I could easily relate to. And the projects could use my skills in English and communication and writing. So all seemed a perfect fit, except one key shortcoming. That is, I had absolutely no idea of the main topic for that project. That is about sexual and reproductive health and rights. So luckily, the country director at that time made a very brave decision to take me in and supported me all the way, very generously and allowing me to learn and develop my knowledge and understanding in this area while I was working with a brilliant team who are young, innovative, and committed to change and eager to share and help me. So I spent five years working with mers Stokes in China, and we have expanded our footprint from the topic of sexual and reproductive health and rights to the HIV-AIDS program. In early 2000, the HIV epidemic rapidly increased and mers was actively involved in many programs varying from HIV-AIDS information education or providing care for the people who live with the HIV and AIDS and advocacy for access to treatment. So my experience working in the very tabooed topic, discussing the sexual health and the reproductive health and rights, actually really enabled me to work with, at that time, very stigmatized topic, that is HIV, and even more stigmatized groups, like men who have sex with men or female sex workers. So that experience really shaped my view of the development work and also my approach to understand and work with the marginalized or the vulnerable groups. So while I actually learned, improved, and thoroughly enjoyed the experience working in Meristopes, when time passed by, I felt an increasing urge and need to take a step out of the direct implementation of the programs. I need a pause to reflect and to learn and to get some systematic training or probably explore something deeper or broader. So, In in 2007, I moved to Sweden to study international humanitarian action. At that time, I had the expectation probably I would switch to a totally different career path. However, it seems that destiny has its own plan. In 2009, after finishing that program, I got uh, a job opportunity working for the Global Fund. Global Fund was not a humanitarian organization in a strict sense. But as we all know, in the early 2000s, the HIV epidemic, particularly in sub-Saharan African region, was regarded as one of the biggest humanitarian crises. So Global Funds was set up in 2002 to really take urgent responses to HIV, AIDS, and other deadly diseases affecting most of the population in many low-income countries, that is TB and malaria. So the organization took a very innovative approach to tackle the public health challenges, which was mobilizing huge resources and moving the funds quickly to the country, respecting the country ownership in planning and deciding the program and how to use the fund. On the other hand, adopting a very strict performance-based financing principle and implementing a very robust financial and problematic monitoring measures. So again... Like a few years ago, I was very excited by this combination of new approaches and I was quite impressed by the vibrant and diversified team working in Global Fund. So instead of joining the classical humanitarian action, I joined the Global Fund and worked there since then. I've been uh, covering most of the Pacific and Asian countries in my decade working for Global Fund and also expanded my experience and scope of work to some African countries. So that is my story and I'm afraid there has not been a coherent theme and rather it's more like kind of improvised jazz with unexpected changes triggered mostly by my curiosity. That's it.
1: Very interesting and fascinating. And it's such a comprehensive overview of your experiences. And now taking it maybe a few steps back, you mentioned the experience you had in 2002, starting out at Mary Stops. And at that time, it was a, the NGO concept, was a new concept in China, you mentioned. And you were working on taboo topics and with stigmatized groups. In that work, what were some of the challenges you faced in terms of raising awareness or working within kind of the civil society and also maybe with partners? What were some of the issues that had to be addressed and overcome and what did you find to be effective ways of working
0: around those and navigating those? Mm. So first, I think I benefit from my ignorance if I could say that since I know nothing about this taboo I only know it is not the topic in the tradition and culture for China to really even talk about it but it does not mean the challenges did not exist and uh, when I started I actually learned a lot from the country director she said a very I would say kind of role model for woman leadership that is really delivering and tackling some of the challenges in a very calm and open-minded way. She's a firm and strategic, but she also demonstrates a huge humanity by listening and offering the solutions together. So I think this approach really calmed me down and also encouraged me to take up this probably one of the most difficult topics to discuss with the educational officials, schoolmasters, or the teachers association or the parents representatives. And it's actually surprisingly well accepted. It's not like people turned away and regarded this is really taboo i didn't we did not want to hear it rather they shared their challenges they have observed the students the young people from 12 to 17 years old that is so natural they were encountering all these challenges and that is Almost two decades ago, there were no internet. There were no wide access to the information. But people grow, and they would like to know their body and their sexuality and how to really protect themselves from the diseases. And most important, to really have the confidence for what they feel right. And all these challenges, the existing establishment, did not have tools to address it. So instead of being enemy, which I perceived before I started working it, they were sharing their challenges and concerns. And they'd like us to really provide some practical and feasible let's see, skills, trainings, so they could help the students really sail through this turmoil And how to really reach this, let's say, initial openness. I think that is the approach I learned from Lily, um, the country director of Maristow. That is to name the issue openly and in a calm way to listen to their challenges and then explain what is our strength and what we can help. It does not always solve all their challenges. And in most of cases, particularly for this sensitive topic, the initial reaction from the school and from the educational official was, yes, it's very good, you can help us, so please go to do that. So that kind of attitude in the very beginning was viewed as an easy access. But in the long run, it's not sustainable because the project will finish in a few years. If the real stakeholders were not really involved or accept or even be trained and supported in their capacity and skills to address that, it will just die away. So the second step is really we were expanding our partnership, for all the support from only the adolescents and students, who we call it gatekeepers or the stakeholders, to actually discuss how and in what ways they would like to address this, and particularly in the very conservative culture and context. So that is the second learning lesson. When we try to really deliver some service which is very right and for the target people, always need to actually analyze how to get access to them. And when we analyze those stakeholders, they are not only the barriers. Rather, we should work with them and to actually if possible, transform their attitude and establish a team work. worked because they will also benefit from the changes. So these two things actually proved successful. And now if we really look backward, I think that very initial project has triggered a lot of structural changes. I think in 2007 and 2009, from China in the province we have been working with, actually from the educational department they organized the teachers and the doctors as well as the representatives from the youth to develop the first ever curriculum tackling the issues related to the reproductive health the sexuality and rights and even raised the topic and discussing about lgbt issues so i do feel the partnership really needs to be based on the mutual understanding and also a positivity. I do appreciate there has been various analytical framework to really provide critical issues when we really try to address development or the sexuality or reproductive health-related issue. This helps us to analyze where the weakness and the challenges are. However, my practice or experience has brought another perspective. That is, this has to be translated into day-to-day work. And day-to-day work means we work with people. And I do believe people can change. So this is about the challenge and how we actually work around or try to address the big gaps and challenges. So, this probably um, changed quite significantly over the decade in the area of SRHR, mostly because of the political changes. However, this actually really increased my confidence and the approach to really work with the marginalized group, also, work with the perceived taboo topics in the conservative environment and it actually can work. It takes time and there are ups and downs in the process. But if we believe this, this is right and we also believe people can change and they have the agents and they need support to change, even when we talk about government, This is not a unified one identity, and there are people behind their identity or their titles. That's where I think the possibility exists.
1: Mm. That's very interesting, and it's very nice to hear that you you think that it triggered structural changes, although it takes time and it, it requires the belief and the effort and the everyday working with people that in the end, it can have a structural impact. After your time there, you mentioned you went on to study in Sweden. Were you looking to work in other countries? Was it your plan to get work experience outside of China? Or is
0: that something that just happened? The opportunity just came up? Well, I think it's a combination of all of this. I've been working for five years. And before that, I have been working three years as journalism. And I studied English. So I was actually really caught in the middle. That is the very fast changing reality in china there have been so many challenges and also new things happening almost in every part of the society and i also benefit from this opening up and when i said ngo was a totally new concept i had no idea what ngo is because where i grew up like but China at that time, there was only one concept, that is government, which is supposed to take care of everyone from the birth to the death. And only after the opening up, there has been another increasing power, that is the business, and that's represented by the private sectors. And gradually, the civil society idea, the non-government the organization, This concept was introduced through different cooperation programs. So all these changes really opened up my view and also increased my interest to compare different society and different cultures. And as I also said, after a few years working in the field, I felt the need to really step out from this day-to-day. Management and implementation work to have a a more theoretical reflection and to improve myself systematically in the area of development or management or the civil society. All those are the new topics for me at that time. And I also want to try something new. As I said, if there were any theme really underlying My career, in and out, and left and right, that is my curiosity. So yes, I think it's a combination of curiosity and the interest of knowing different countries and have a much broader view and understanding at the global level. And also it came with opportunity. And I still remember it's not directly linked to the choice of Sweden. But we had a project uh, working on the human rights issues for the HIV-affected population and community. And we have a joint workshop. We invited a South African human rights activist who was actually really inspiring to bring the different experiences working in the human rights and humanitarian areas to address the challenges facing the people living with this disease. So that really inspired me to say, look, I want to learn more and I want to know how the other countries are doing. But I had no plan at that moment to say, yes, I must come back, although that probably is the strongest wish from my family. But I just actually um, followed the flow. I see. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. And with that curiosity,
1: eventually, as you say, you accepted a position at the Global Fund. And there are many aspects of your work there. But of course, one of them is developing partnerships, facilitating partnerships, and especially among different sectors, among government, among civil society, private sector, all the different areas and groups that are involved. What are some of the maybe challenges you face when it comes to trying to facilitate collaboration or get different actors and stakeholders to work together, especially in a context where they all maybe have their own interests as well, or there's also some political interests and a political context within the discussions? What have been some of the observations you've had or the reflections you have about how to make those collaborations impactful despite any of the political clashes or tensions that maybe happen sometimes
0: right. So Global Fund, as I said, what attracted me is a very new approach to really help the country addressing the public health challenges. It's Different from the traditional bilateral or multilateral program that is between donor and the recipient, it's actually quite a hybrid model, which we call it country ownership. And we also have a very independent local governance structure. And uh, country ownership basically means these few things. Number one, The country does not equal to government agency only. The country should really represent the different stakeholders. And this will lead to a local governance structure. We call it country coordinating mechanism. And in this committee of mechanism, there are different constituencies representing government, academic, private sector. the. Bilateral and multilateral partners. And very important, there are not two constituencies. One is really the civil society, and another is the people and community affected by the diseases. So this country coordinating mechanism, they will make a decision where the money should be invested and how this will be invested. The global fund, we actually did not have any country offices. We only have the offices. Uh, Geneva. It is a secretariat. So even when the proposal was developed by the country, the secretariat has no role to really approve it. We will facilitate the review. But the actual review and approval, the power was with an independent technical review panel, which, again, is a combination of different experts. In disease, in human rights, in the health system. So, in this structure, what I found the challenge as well as the opportunity is you brought in so many different voices that inevitably will make the process heavy. And inevitably, there will be different agendas and priorities will clash. So, how this actually should be managed is always an ongoing challenge and gradually for the global fund, we have actually developed a mechanism we call it country dialogue that is really to facilitate the open discussion and particularly the participation from the constituency of civil society as well as the people who are affected by the disease and in this dialogue different interests and agendas were requested to be listed openly and there would be a public debate and deliberation and discussion and negotiation to come with a list of priorities. So, if we just use this as an example to really summarize what is my uh, experience to deal with the partnership, maybe can be three words. One is really the public participation. And second is transparency. And third is actually agreed consensus on priority. And when I say agreed consensus on priority, that probably is the most tricky part because the resource is always limited. And of course, it can never satisfy everyone's agenda and needs. So that makes the process of open deliberation and dialogue critical. It will not be viewed, or at least it will reduce that perception, the decision was made behind the closed door between the donors and the government. So that is one thing I think I learned and which I still appreciate the global fund approach. And the downside is the process is quite, I think, complicated. And sometimes we are really working under the pressure to conclude the dialogue and agree on the priority list. So it's never been perfect. Another outstanding challenge and issue probably is the power imbalance. And of course, there have been brilliant analysis for decades from different philosophers and development workers and in the public health areas to really analyze how the North to South and how the knowledge sharing and also the resource distribution between different countries. And let's not forget about the gender inequality. All this actually deal heavily affecting this partnership. There are two small examples I can share. One is we all agree in the public health areas, particularly in strengthening the health system, the role of community health worker is critical. And I remember once I visited uh, Sierra Leone and uh, we had the conversation with the community health volunteers who really understand what the challenges they were facing because Global Fund was very famous for very strict financial regulation and requirements. So tons and tons of forms need to be filled in and there will be third party to actually make a very vigorous validation. So in that conversation, it's a small group. There were five women and all of them, They did not have the jobs because there were no really job opportunities for them. That's how come they had the time. And they also had the passion to help their neighbors and the villages. And they were the ones really go door to door to really collect data to distribute the malaria drugs and also provide the reproductive health services. But surprisingly, for that two hours conversation, 90% of the time of discussion were happening between our team and their leader. That leader was a man, also coming from the community, very passionate, and also very good, eloquent in explaining the challenges. But during that conversation, I always had that uncomfortable feeling, that is, when we talk about community health workers and we see majority of the work was done by this woman, but why even in this dialogue, is supposed to be really the pro-development and supporting these community work, the woman still did not have voice. And we tried to really divert the attention and ask and facilitate these women volunteers to give more voices and feedback. But sadly, they always default to their leader. And uh, there might be barrier of the language. There might be barrier of uneasiness to talk to foreigners. But that really left me with some impression that the gender or the power imbalance really entrenched in every part of wo- our work. So when we talk about rhetorically that we should address the gender imbalance in every part of our program, how we can really translate this into this very detailed, let's see, activity, we should not only hire more women. We probably should do more to facilitate these women volunteers to have more voices to be heard. So that is one thing I find the power imbalance. Another thing I found probably quite interesting is the power is actually also a construction and deconstruction process. And that is a combination of different hacks. So, for example, when I went to, to a country that is almost 10 years ago, when I led a team to visit a Pacific country and to discuss our investment, and when we had the meeting with the ministers and the different UN agencies, and I was quite amused to see they, by default, directed all the questions to my male colleague, who happened to be a middle aged, strong, White man. Well, I was actually the manager. But because I'm Asian, I was young, I was a woman, and I was quiet. So no one probably even to think that the team members sitting there might have different perspective. But after some time of into the meetings, when we actually introduced our titles and the responsibility, so you immediately saw the change of the dynamic. Because I represent actually a lot of resources, the more questions immediately actually direct to me, they perceive the subordinate role as a woman actually was replaced kind of respect. But this re- respect is not because of my gender. It's because I wearing a hat and this hat represents the global fund, which comes with a huge Resources. And then there's another level of the changes. And when we actually had the conversation with the local community, particular representatives from the local churches, and also the people who are affected by the disease, for example, HIV, and you would also observe a shift of the, the power in the conversation because Global Fund had a very strong belief that is we should really give more space to the community. And we would purposely to create bigger space and ask this community to give more voices and asking their feedback and their concerns of some design of the program. So in that kind of conversation, you will hear the community voice more than the voice from the ministers or from the UN agencies. So from those experiences, I believe that the power was not predestined. And it actually is a fluid process, and we need to actively acknowledge it and challenge it and also change it.
1: Absolutely. What a strong and striking example of the power dynamics that you're mentioning and we're talking about, especially how, as your example showed, The power dynamics exist within the partnerships and the communities you're trying to work in, but also amongst yourself in terms of your colleagues and your partners and how it comes up in all types of different ways and in different contexts. You mentioned the different impressions and the different power relationships that exist in terms of a gender lens, in terms of a resource lens. In your own experiences as a leader, as a manager, as a woman, in a position of power, especially as a Chinese woman or your background specifically, have you seen that maybe there are increasingly more women in positions of power or what are your thoughts about in the sector generally, the type of diversity and representation that you see or you think exists in positions of leadership and the the ability of women, especially from different nationalities and backgrounds to
0: progress to these type of positions? I have a very simple answer to this. I think this sector, or not only the sector of development, I think the whole society should and must make more room and support more women to become leaders. And that is not only an argument, that is a belief I strongly hold. But in this process, I think I recognize a few things. Number one, the space and the leadership is not a given. And it means there should be opportunities for the woman and also the capacities for the woman to really be trained to actually develop the leadership. Leadership is not some mysterious charisma only. It is a skill set that everyone is able to develop and to master. So talking about opportunities and the space, and that is where the system, the structure can do more. And one very simple thing is, in many organizations, there must be more consideration in recruitment for women, not only for the lower level job, but actually really senior managerial and leadership positions. Second, what I recognize is the leadership for women should really try to avoid the trap of the pre-printed stereotype or masculine template. That is our human history. When we talk about great leader or great leadership and the names most coming to our mind are men and there probably are very hidden stereotype that is only by behaving like a man will make a woman a great leader i think that's actually quite wrong and if we really look into the history the gender stereotype was so entrenched to our even perception what should be a good leader and i told you one example i have worked Immersed up, and Lily, who was a Chinese woman and leading an international NGO working on very sensitive topics, has demonstrated a very different way of leading the organization and building the team. She's calm and she has never really used the loud voice or demonstrated the muscles to actually just preach what we are doing is right and good, so you must submit to this idea. Rather, she sits with different stakeholders and different government, and even from like the police and the militaries, and she will explain, and she try to listen. I think listen is Probably a very simple word, but very powerful if we really can master it. She would listen to the different challenges and she would demonstrate the understanding. The understanding does not mean the agreement in most of cases, but she would understand their concern and their agenda. And she also demonstrates her way of leading is not ordering. Rather is inspiring and working together to find a solution. So I think there is a different type of leadership. And I try to avoid call it a female leadership because again, that falls into a dichotomy that woman or man or female or male. But I do believe the leadership for women needs a new pathway and we should actually aim not only for women, but also for men to adopt this new way of leadership. And last but not least, I also wanted to take the opportunity to rethink when we talk about gender, of course, we can't avoid this uh, conflict between men and women. But from my background, working in the SRHR area, and I think sometimes we should probably think much broader and elastic because gender is actually a quite big, broad spectrum. So when we talk about gender issues, we should not only narrow it down to women's issue. There are also a huge space which we should really explore and support more. It is about the LGBT right. It is to understand and give voices for those sexual minorities. And particularly, these other groups disproportionately affected in the areas I'm working with, such as HIV and AIDS. So that is also my small uh, reservation when we talk about gender. And I think we need to look broader, not only men or women.
1: Absolutely. I think that's very well said. Those considerations have to be at the top of mind in everybody's work relationships and their own understanding. Uh, You mentioned that at the Global Fund, it's a hybrid model and there's a local governance structure. But I also want to ask you about the part of your work as a front manager where you're providing investment, you're providing financing how do you ensure accountability and transparency and that the funds are used correctly? Or have you ever had experiences where there were maybe issues or challenges around the management of the funds? And in that case, what were some of the ways you dealt
0: with that? Yes, that is my everyday headache. (laughs) And just from the title, you will sense that a little bit weird. It's not the classical development worker's job. It's actually the concept brought from the investment bank. So when I talk about global fund, we have a very strong gene in our management. That is, we are very keen and strong in the financial management and monitoring monetary system. So in the very beginning, when I joined the global fund. I really need to learn a lot, which was so fascinating because the colleagues from the financial department really brought a very new set of perspectives to analyze the program. Not only to say, okay, this is good. Actually they will use the most boring data to tell you if it's really good. And They might sound very dull because we are talking about money. But unfortunately, even in this work, money is probably one of the most important tools. And their motto is follow the money, know where the money is really invested. If we have a program saying we want to really put additional 100,000 people into treatment, but if we analyze the budget, half of the budget, if we go to hiring people paying for the travel related cost, naturally you will actually have the question, how this will put additional 100,000 people into treatment? So I think that is a very powerful tool. And for Global Fund, the request for the financial Transparency and reporting probably are excessively difficult if I can actually use that terminology. We have been hearing the complaints from day one. This probably is the shortfall when we want to really ensure a very transparent reporting. So there are a few layers. First, we call it a principal recipient. This is a terrible um, terminology, but let's use it. And they have a very detailed reporting template. And instead of just from them reporting to us, we have a locally hired funding agency. Usually they are the auditing firms. They will come validate the expenditure report. And if anything suspicious, they will notify us and they will conduct a following up investigation. And the third layer, from the global, fund the inside, although I was working in the front line, the grant management, but we have an independent financial department and is really doing the check and balance for every disbursement. And on top of it, we have the independent inspector general's office. The head of that office is actually reporting directly to our board chair not to the secretariat executive director and again in the country even another layer that is the oversight body we call it the country coordinating mechanism they were requesting the principal recipient and sometimes sub-recipients to really have the periodical reports and so last but not least we were performing actually randomly investigation and auditing to different countries and different programs and when the risks were identified the fiduciary agency was even employed in some exceptional cases which means every dollar to be paid will need to go through another layer of check so what is the advantage for this of these layers and layers of check is to really reduce the misuse of the funds. But there's another side of story. That is, when we put layers and layers, naturally, the decision-making and the absorption, the money-moving speed will be slowed down. And second, the methodology for auditing, and particularly is based on paper, While the world is moving so fast and particularly there are so many different contexts, you cannot get paper-based official receipts for every expenditure. So how to actually reconcile this requirement? And third, this very strong financial management actually posed some negative incentive to the program. In some cases, we noted. The countries, when they design and implement the program, the first thinking is not to see if this program is leading to bigger impact, meaning to save more lives or reduce new infections. Rather, is thinking, if we conduct this activity, if there's risk that we will be audited if we cannot get the paper-based official receipt. But, you know, in many cases, particularly like if we have worked with men having sex with men or female sex workers, the outreach in this community can't really track every expenditure in the official receipt. Not mentioning, in some cases, we have to work against the local regulation, such as in some countries, drug use is illegal, but we need to work with the people who inject drugs for the HIV prevention. So all these challenges actually led to some very significant change. And I'll give you one example. In Cambodia, I was uh, requested to really take on the portfolio because a previous misuse of fund and very heavy fiscal control measures were introduced. And it was so heavy that it led to almost paralyzed implementation of program. So when I was brought in, what I discovered was actually really overcautious or risk-aversion behavior that the country, the program needs to actually uh, increase the per diem for the program staff, made the local travel from $1 to $2. So for this decision, they need Geneva team to approve because they were so afraid that if they made such changes, it will be deemed ineligible and then they need to actually pay back. This actually really became a huge obstacle because if every action they are going to take is based on, if this will become ineligible, then I'm not going to do it. Then as a result, no one is going to leave the office to actually go to the field to do the real work. So this small example just tried to give you a flavor. When we have overly heavy hands to the fiscal or paper-based financial management, the program implementation suffered. So we had to actually find a balance the balance is really to develop a different risk mitigation approach. And living in the real world, this is not just one way or another. We actually need to adjust in different areas with different threshold and different approval procedures. But ultimately, to start with the changes, we need to rebuild the trust. The trust once destroyed, become I suspect you or you did not believe me, then any changes would not really um, happen or it will only happen on paper. So that is my experience about the conflict or tension between the financial control vis-a-vis the program implementation towards impact. And in terms of transparency, as Global Fund, one of the top organizations to really disclose most of the documents, including the budget and expenditures on the public website. So the donors and the community and civil societies can really review, track, and challenge us. Last but not least about accountability, I think accountability is really mutual. Being mutual means we share the risks, and we actually hold each other accountable. It should not be the way that i give you money, that you do what I tell you. That's probably very wrong. It is actually should be changed to, yes, we act as an investment banker, but we invest in the public health. So if we have to invest in the joint venture in this country, then I tell you what I can do. That is actually I bring in the, the money, the resources, and also bring the internationally established guidance, drugs, and diagnose key. And from the country, you also bring your commitment and make the upfront commitment and requirement agreed. And then we actually follow this. Of course, in reality, this is not always working. We always need to negotiate and monitor and to actually push each other. Without the upfront agreement on each other's roles and responsibility, the accountability will become only a one-way tool. That probably will not work. Right. That's very
1: powerful, I think, the idea of accountability as a two-way street and it being mutual. You also touched on risk aversion and creating kind of a different risk mitigation approach that is different for each context. And part of what you mentioned that the fund also does is innovative approaches, maybe moving money faster. When it comes to innovative solutions and trying to achieve impact, strengthening health systems, do you ever maybe feel frustrated about the pace of change or? How long change takes or the process or what have been your experiences in terms of the time that's necessary for these processes, these approaches, even if they're new innovations to work, to be implemented, to have more sustainable change and, you know, that tension
0: with time? Yeah, I guess we all had a dream that what we preach will actually be realized probably in three years. That is our funding cycle. No, it is impossible. And I think we are frustrated. But on the other hand, we probably are also the slave of the short time frame because the way we are measuring our achievement, also measuring the impact, are usually based on the defined duration. Like in Global Fund, it's three years. So within three years, we really want to see a big change. Some we can achieve, like the put more people on the treatment or get more people tested for HIV. But some underlying challenges cannot be changed over time, over three years, probably over 30 years. And that underlying things, such as the inequality, the power imbalance, and the right to access to the primary health and quality services, will actually take longer time. And I still keep the positive attitude because I see the changes. And also, if we actually look in a, a little bit longer time frame, you will get more, I think, data to support this positive attitude. There has been a very famous Swedish that physician and physician. His name is Hans Sling. And he actually developed a very interactive website called Gapminder. He demonstrated in the past 50 years or even 100 years how we human society progress despite all the challenges. And just give you a very simple data. The life expectancy in India in 1950 Average was 35.5 years old. And the data in 2018 is 69.5 years old. It's literally doubled. That is over 50 years. So changes happen and change will take time. I feel we are impatient because the change takes actually not a linear way. And sometimes we go one step forward and probably two steps backward. But that probably is the process when we really want to make the fundamental changes in the structure. And coming back to your very uh, concrete question, are there any changes in the financial model we are working that can be addressed quickly? I think. We are now moving to more and more result-based funding. That is another innovative approach to really address those paper-based trail financial measurement to really measuring the outcome or impact level. And again, this process will not just happen over um, three years. This takes time to even get the agreement from the donor community and from the different countries. I'm not talking about the countries who give money to the global fund. I'm also talking about the country who receive the fund and from their system, how they actually will accept it and set a different system to monitor the outcome and monitor impact. So some changes we see very quickly. Particularly because of the the technology, like the access to the internet and information, and when I look back fifteen years ago, I was supposed to develop a newspaper discussing the sexuality, and nowadays you would just laugh at this idea that the newspaper was controlling information flow. Now everyone can get the information if they want so I also have the kind of rosy, probably very wrong optimism that the new technology will bring kind of a revolution. We have been struggling for decades, such as the equal access to health and the data generated from our behaviors and consumptions, like buying what drugs, and at what place people will buy condoms, for example, will also give us more accurate analysis and guide the program to have more targeted intervention. And of course, there are again the downside about the privacy and the data integrity. But as all the new changes It is actually upon to the people how we want to use it. We can't really stop just because of this fear. It might be misused. Hence, we should actually not consider it. So that is my perception and also my hope.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. As you say, there are challenges, but that can't stop the process. And maybe just changing the time frames in which we work can help in in maybe mitigating some of the the challenges or frustrations that come up. Now in the time of the coronavirus pandemic, how has maybe your work been impacted or what are your thoughts in terms of uh, the consequences of it, broadly speaking, in the sector
0: that you work in? Yeah, I think this pandemic has really changed our daily life dramatically, just almost overnight. And uh, it also actually raised a lot of questions, which have not to be answered. But it became so urgent that is the pandemic actually knows no border. So, in order to address this issue, what we need is actually much closer solidarity with different countries, rather than isolation. And this approach is not only to combat the pandemic of COVID, but actually also address the other underlying challenges as the social injustice, human rights, particular access to the quality health for everyone. And the second, what I reflect is the COVID, because of the impact coming so quick and broad, and it actually shadowed and sometimes even crowd out those other, if I'm only talking about health, they the other health programs. In the past two months, we have observed a significant reduction of like the TB notification and HIV case testing. So it came with a very heavy price. That is, are the people suffering from different diseases actually not only pay the price of the COVID, but also pay the price of they cannot get their services. So that is actually a very urgent request for us to think and to act very quickly, because we can't really sit on our mandate only for three diseases. We must really work on the cross-cutting health system issues and to help addressing some most urgent needs brought by the COVID to the health workers and volunteers in the field. And the last but not least, it's only an individual reflection because there have been tons and tons of interviews, articles, analyzing the COVID and the impact and the responses. But as an individual, I actually started rereading a book, which I read probably 20 years ago, by a French novelist, whose name is Albert Camus. And he wrote a novel, The Plague, in 1947. And the story, the actions and analysis of people when facing the plague was exactly the same as what we have been through during COVID. And it seems we have not really progressed too much how we should really respond, but probably that is part of human nature. And uh, I think in that book, which I actually really like, that is the attitude as individual level, how I can embrace the challenge and can move on. And he said, so there's no question of heroism in all this. It is a matter of common decency. That's an idea which makes some people smile. But the only means of fighting a plague is common decency. And in common decency, my understanding is actually showing the empathy, taking your responsibility to protect yourself and also help your neighbors, your community and unite and to really fight against diseases.
1: That's so well said. And I think it's a perfect place to wrap up the conversation. I've learned so much from you and there's so much I'd love to go back and listen to again. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your honesty and all the wonderful ideas and contributions you shared. It's been absolutely a great, great pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thank you. Have a very nice afternoon and thanks for the opportunity to talk to you.
1: As always, thank you to our listeners. I really appreciate your attention and value being able to facilitate these important conversations for all of us. As we are nearing the end of the second season, I'd love to hear from you. I have created a short survey for you to fill out to share your feedback. I'll post the link on our Medium blog and social media platforms. Please take a few minutes to fill it out. If you want to support the podcast so that I can continue to bring you more great episodes, the best way to do that is by going to Patreon and becoming a supporter. The address is www.patreon.com slash development. There you can sign up for various levels of monthly monetary support or paid subscriptions. There are different subscription options and each comes with its own exclusive rewards and perks. Your patronage is what will help me create a third season featuring a range of different practitioners. Thank you again for tuning in, and I look forward to sharing similar conversations with you all next time. Until then, take
0: care.